Chapter Twenty Two of Miss Frances Baird, Detective, by Reginald Wright Kaufman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Bromley grows mysterious. Here, indeed, was a turn of affairs. I had gone about constructing an elaborate theory. I had hypnotized myself into believing it to be the correct one, and here it was, all in ruins, smashed to bits by the simplest fact, the very sort of thing a hare-brained woman would be sure to do, the one action which, in the circumstances, I should have known a girl of Evelyn's character most likely to perform. I saw at once, now, how wild my latest idea of the crime had been. It was impossible on the face of it, and on the face of it, too, this girl was telling the plain truth. The idea of this moral weakling ever having had the courage to kill a man. It did flash through my mind that now I was again face to face with the old difficulty, and that, in proving Lawrence innocent, I must, as things finally stood, merely be handing him over to this poor example of frightened womanhood. But that thought, I am glad to say, soon gave way to the sheer joy of knowing that he was innocent, and this was, in turn, replaced by the purely professional instinct, by the love of a problem, for the sake of its solving. As a mere matter of form, however, I had to test Evelyn. I riddled her with cross-questions, but to no purpose. She was not only certain of her main facts, once her determination was formed, during the drive home with Stenger, Remington, and the Walsh twins, she had been so anxious to go back to Lawrence without delay that on returning to the Maples after the dance, she had looked at the clock in the hall at home and seen, and remembered, that it was just the hour I had reckoned, 2.57 a.m. "'But why, in heaven's name,' I exclaimed, "'if you could prove an alibi for Mr. Fredericks, haven't you spoken? Of course it isn't a complete one, and of course you're not a disinterested witness.' but the whole case against him at present hinges on the fact that he lied, at first to me, as to where he had been, and that he has kept silence on that point ever since. There, at least, you could have helped him. She hung her head. He sent me a note by Mr. Gray, she murmured, one that even Mr. Gray didn't read, and in it he asked me, he even commanded me, not to tell. And you obeyed that quixotic request when you knew his life was in danger? I, I didn't think it was in danger, Miss Baird. Indeed, and indeed I didn't. And, and besides, she stopped and put her hands to her face as if physically unable to continue. But I meant to have it out of her. And besides what? I demanded. Besides, she faltered, you do not know my mother. That was enough for me. I got away as soon as I could, lest I should be altogether betrayed by my disgust. She wept over me and thanked me when I told her that I was working in Lawrence's interests, and altogether went on in such a way that I just had to get out, with no more accomplished than her parting promise that she would mention our interview to no one, not even to Fredericks or Gray, in return for which, if you please, I had to vow that I would do all in my power to keep her from appearing in the case. If she had only known it, I would have been only too glad to toss her out of it altogether. Well, I got back to my room and began to formulate what I had done and that, when I came to set down in black and white, was only this. First, I had found a reasonable explanation for Lawrence's original lie, and later silence on the subject of his mysterious exit from the Maples on the night of the murder. And, second, I had found a witness who, if necessary, could be made to swear to his whereabouts from the time he left the house until I met him on his return, or at all events until he had left her, the witness, after conducting her back to the Bladesdell house but really, was this very much? I could easily oppose each of those propositions thus. First, 
a reasonable explanation, or even a perfect one, of Fredericks's lie in his absence left me still to account for the fact that he had loved Evelyn, that he had declared the jewels would be all that he needed to marry her and become rich, that he had hardly said this before the jewels were stolen, that the stolen jewels were replaced by a paste copy such as he, and so far as was known he alone, had once possessed, and that he had, finally, the most powerful motive for killing young Deneen. Second, Evelyn's testimony as to his whereabouts was, as I had told her, that of an interested party. A clever district attorney could even very easily make her look like an accomplice. Even supposing that the State was willing to accept her story as true, that story only accounted for Fredericks for a comparatively unimportant period. It still left him certainly in the house when the theft was committed, almost certainly when the murder was committed and it gave him a wide opportunity to dispose of the stolen property somewhere about the grounds or to an accomplice after he had seen evelyn safely return to her home i was then just about where i had been when i started out in lawrence's cause it still behoved me to find the right culprit and there i really had a lucid interval i realized that in an action so rapid as had been that of this crime one must first discover when things had been done in order afterward to form any workable theory as to how they were done and who did them i took up my pencil and paper again and began to figure luckily this was now comparatively easy for a detective soon learns the value of noting time when there is something doing we had made a point to refer frequently to our watches after the worst was known and the testimony at the inquest had latterly served to fix all these observations in my mind i remembered first that when i had sat down in my room to watch the diamonds just before the first theft a clock had struck half-past two i now referred to my watch wrote out the conversation i had heard between fredericks and evelyn and after reading it over as if it were being spoken allowing intervals for action i found that the precise moment of the theft must have been two thirty nine or two forty kemp had testified that he had come up to relieve me at the appointed time so i had been examining the paste jewels about five minutes when he entered at two forty five he had pleaded you will perhaps recall that there was no need for instant action and in so doing had said it was then two fifty six which was about a minute before young jimmy deneen surprised us there now the man who was even then going to his death could not have remained with us more than three or four minutes for on leaving him we went directly downstairs just as the clock struck three and Kemp had sworn that it showed five minutes after the hour as we returned with the head of the house. I next tested our conversation with old Mr. Deneen in the gift room, as I had tested that of Lawrence and Evelyn. Then I went over the ground from the gift room to Mrs. Deneen's, as I had covered it on the night of the murder, and calculated that it was 3.12 when I joined Kemp outside of the death chamber. There we must have wasted three precious minutes, for Kemp had, as we left the room, said we had been in it for ten minutes, and that it was then three twenty-five. Going, with what feelings you may best imagine, into the room that had been Lawrence's, I reenacted the scene there, and allowed for it the time between three twenty-five and three thirty. The examination of Bromley's room had not taken more than two minutes, and I had then returned to James's, which I had been able to bear for just seven minutes. Thus I had detected the presence of someone in the cellar at three thirty-nine. I had seen that it was four o'clock when I went out to wait for Fredericks, so that, allowing a minute for my partial undressing, I had been on that cellar expedition for twenty minutes in all, or fifteen minutes, if I deducted five for my return with Bromley. Finally, 
Lawrence had come back at twenty minutes to five. So much for one side of my chart. Now for its opposite, which must account for Lawrence's course of action. For that, as I did not dare to go to him and tell him that I had been prying into his secret, I had to depend on the results of my cross-examination of Evelyn, but they were relatively satisfactory. On parting from Evelyn upstairs, the accused man had gone, ostensibly, at once to his room, and the girl, descending the stairs, had found Stenger, Remington, and the Walsh twins already in the carriage and waiting for her, so that she must have left the Maples at about 2.42, by which time Lawrence would have been smoking a disconsolate cigar at his bedroom window. The party had reached the Bladesdell place at 2.57, and within the almost incredibly short space of a minute, Evelyn had sent her guests to bed, had gone to her own room, descended again by the back stairs, and was on her return journey to the Maples, which distance she said she could always cover, even by night, within ten or twelve minutes. I split the difference, and made her get there at three-nine, as I had originally calculated. At her arrival, Lawrence, of course, at once went down to her. Their talk in the shrubbery lasted until about four-fifteen, when he saw the girl back to her own home in a fifteen minutes' walk. I didn't like to think that it took so much longer to go than to come, but I had to do so and this brought Lawrence face to face with me at 4.50. I now had constructed a timetable which was reasonably exact. It went like this. 2.39 to 2.40, diamonds stolen. 2.40 to 2.45, I alone with the imitations. 2.42, Evelyn starts home. 2.45 to 2.57, Kemp and I talking. 2.57 to 2.59, Kemp and I talking to James Jr. 2.57, Evelyn arrives home. 2.59 to 3.05, Kemp and I downstairs. 2.58 to 3.09, Evelyn returns to the Maples by the shortcut across lots. 3.05 to 3.10, Kemp and I go in gift room with Deneen Sr. 3.10 to 3.12, I calling Mrs. Deneen. 3.09 to 4.30, Evelyn with Fredericks. He takes her home by the shortcut. 3.12 to 3.15, Kemp and I outside young James's door. 3.15 to 3.25, in young james's room three twenty five to three thirty in frederick's room three thirty to three thirty two in bromley's room three thirty two to three thirty three kemp and i in young james's room for the second time three thirty three to three forty i alone in bromley's and james's rooms while kemp took news of murder to the gift room three forty to four o'clock i in the cellar four to four o five i returning with bromley etc four o five to four forty waiting outside the house. 4.40, Fredericks returns. There is no use in going into the details of the work which first grew out of a careful study of this schedule. Suffice it that, covertly sneered at and openly cajoled by Kemp, encouraged by the old man who still remained in the dark, and always dogged by one or the other of the county detectives, I went at the case systematically during the next day, and though I had previously investigated the servants, took them up again one by one, and one by one again eliminated them. Meanwhile, the household began to resume its natural air, as, in time, even the most upset household must. Mrs. Deneen, although showing sadly the signs of all that she had suffered, presided at the table with something of her former grace. Her husband did his best to live up to the part she thus set him, and only Bromley, who continued Kemp's fast friend, relied upon any extraneous stimulant, which, after all, in Bromley's case, was no doubt not unusual. But him I watched with increasing interest, for as one character after another was eliminated from my problem, his value manifestly increased, 
so that by the evening of the next day I was pretty close upon his heels. Indeed, there now remained only this young degenerate, his father and his mother. Neither fathers nor mothers are likely to kill their firstborn, but jealous, vicious, drunken younger brothers have been known before this to murder their elders, and toward Bromley, Bromley whom I had seen look daggers at young James when the jewels were first shown, Bromley, who had re-entered the house so strangely after my trip to the cellar, I now began to work. This decision I reached by evening, and I went to bed with the determination to blast along the new vein in the morning. My work, as it chanced, began far earlier than I had dreamed, for just at dawn I woke with a start. There were voices sounding nearby, hushed voices, but so unusual at that strange hour that they undoubtedly served to rouse a woman, part of whose profession it was always to sleep with one ear awake. Stealthily I opened my door and peeped out, and there, in front of Kemp's room, stood the detective in his pajamas, and Bromley Deneen fully dressed, his hat on his head, and in his outstretched hand a box done up, very unskillfully, in brown paper. "'Then I've got plenty of time to catch the train,' the son of the house was remarking. "'I'll stop downstairs for a cup of coffee.' "'To catch the train? What, then, was in the wind?' what even was in that box, and where was Bromley going? There are times in the detective business when instinct is better than reason, and this seemed to be one of them. Not daring to close the door, lest my noise should betray me, I ran to the window and looked out. It was raining, and there in the wet stood a closed carriage, evidently awaiting the pleasure of Bromley Deneen. Again I did not hesitate. I jumped into a rainy-day skirt, a waist, and a tam took my heaviest boots in my hand, and, making sure that the coast was now clear, and Bromley at his providential coffee, stole along the hall, into the room that had been Lawrence's, and so over the roof and down to the ground, by the very way Lawrence had gone to meet Evelyn on that fateful Sunday morning. Once there I made for the shrubbery, and passing the gate knelt in the shadow of a big oak, pulling my shoes over wet stockings, until I heard the carriage rumbling toward me. I knew it must pause at the gate, and I thought that it could not get up much speed until it had passed my hiding-place. Once more my calculations were correct. The carriage lumbered by with the driver intent on his horses, and Bromley invisible inside. I waited an instant until it was a few paces beyond me, then dodged into the middle of the road, and with a dash forward caught it, leaped, as lightly as I could, onto the rear projections, the springs and things, and hung fast for dear life just as the horses sprang forward under a sudden application of the whip. Over what followed, over the spectacle of Frances Baird ridiculously stealing a ride, her skirt, short as it was, dragging now and again in the mud, her body shaken at every rut, her hands aching, and her face perforce turned upward to the pelting skies, I prefer, by your leave, to draw a kindly curtain. It is enough to say that I suffered physical agonies from the strain, and was constantly in mortal terror lest some early pedestrian should pass and cry out, Whip behind! but I had grit enough to conquer the inconvenience, and the danger I escaped chiefly, no doubt, because the very rain which added to my torments kept people indoors. However, it was altogether a rather unpleasant renewal of my earlier days, and it was with considerable relief that I greeted the approach to the town which, fortunately, lay on beyond the railway station. At once I dropped from my perch, and lay low while I saw Bromley go into the ticket office. A moment later, the train citywards ran in, and my quarry got aboard. Luck was still with me, for the fellow had not only not chosen to ride in the smoking car, but had dropped into a forward seat in the next coach, so that I had, and took, the chance to sit close behind him. 
For some time things went on well enough. The conductor entered, calling, "'Tickets from Black Springs!' and I noticed that Bromley offered one which I concluded must read to New York. I therefore paid my own fare for the same distance, and settled down to keep an eye on him, noting, with increasing satisfaction, that, if there were any truth in his bulging overcoat, he still had the mysterious box in safekeeping. But now my luck, which had thus far been all too good to last, began to turn. It was impossible to expect, of course, that he would open his package, whatever its contents, there in the car. And yet, as things turned out, such a chance was all that would have given me a clear clue to the lad's secret, for the accommodation train, filled with railroad laborers bearing kettles and a few sleepy early workers bound for the city, had passed only two stations south of Black Springs, and its engine was just whistling for the third, when Bromley Deneen turned around abruptly and caught sight of me. Undoubtedly I had been intoxicated by my previous good fortune, and had forgotten common caution. Certainly I had not bethought me of so familiar a peril as that which lurks in looking too hard at any one whom you do not wish to acquaint of your observation. And now all I could do was to look into his nasty, pasty face, watch his jaw fall, see it rise again until the loose lips worked evilly, and all the while be smiling and nodding at the little degenerate as if I were glad to meet him and welcomed his conscious company. He swallowed his mortification with a bad grace, and came back to me, grabbing at the seats of the swaying aisle as he approached. "'Good morning, Mr. Deneen,' I said, with a brave attempt at conventional pleasure. "'Are you going into town, too? I didn't see you come aboard.' "'No,' he replied, with almost open sullenness. "'And I didn't see you. You say you're going into the city?' "'For a few hours only, I hope.' "'Business connected with this mess of ours?' "'Oh, no, only with some private affairs. As a matter of fact, I must see my landlady and do some shopping. I'm so glad to have company. Do sit down.' And I made room for him beside me but he only shot an ugly, unbelieving glance at me, and then looked quickly out of the window. "'Thanks,' he replied. "'But I get off here. I go only this far. I've got to see a fellow about a dog.' The boy had all the readiness of a born criminal, and almost before I knew it he had left me and was on the platform, box and all. Well, he had won the trick, and I had to sit still and see him stand there until the train pulled away and left him." "'Excuse me,' I said a moment later to the conductor, after a few ingratiating pleasantries, "'but wasn't that Mr. Bromley Deneen who got off at Burtonville?' "'Yes, miss, that was young Deneen, the brother of the one Lawrence Fredericks murdered. He often rides on these trains, though I haven't seen him lately.' "'Ah, yes,' I replied. "'I used to know him, and he spoke to me just now, but I couldn't be certain. Well, that was him, all right.' "'But I wonder why he got off there. He told me he was going through to the city.' And that's where his ticket was for, miss. I guess he must have seen a friend. End of chapter 22